just six weeks ago, according to the newspaper statistics, 80,000 revelers packed into the streets of central Edinburgh, and you may have been among them. But equally, you may have been one of the many residents of Edinburgh who were content to hunker down far away from the packed streets around this building, happy to avoid the merriment and mayhem. Well, just imagine how it felt for the 100,000 residents of Jerusalem when it came to Passover during the time of Jesus. You see, they lived in a city that was roughly one square mile in size, or if you prefer modern money, two and a half square kilometers, something the size of that blue square you see on screen. That would have been the size of the city walls of Jerusalem, in which 100,000 residents would have lived. Now, think what it would have been like for them. Each year at Passover, about 3 million fellow Jews came into the city to celebrate the annual Passover meal. You see, this was part of a religious requirement that said, although you can stay in the surrounding areas, the Passover meal had to be eaten within the city walls. And so we find Jesus and his 12 disciples sitting down together to do what they'd done ever since childhood. Two of them, we're told elsewhere, it was Peter and John, had prepared the room and the dining table around which they would all recline. Food had been made ready for the meal. And a variety of symbolic dishes were there in readiness for the special Passover liturgy that would come later as the high point of their evening celebration. Eating together was such a central thing in Middle Eastern life. It was a time for friendship and unity. It was a time to relax and laugh together. Because to eat with someone was a guarantee of your commitment to each other. It was a mark of your mutual bond if you shared bread. But something happened. During the course of the meal, Jesus spoke up and announced that one of them would betray him. It was unthinkable. Certainly in the context of that inner core of disciples eating together. And each of them protested their innocence, including Judas, to whom Jesus replied with a knowing but ambiguous answer. But then, in the course of their Passover celebrations, came the time for the Passover liturgy. That is, when they were enacting those special rituals and speaking those special words that reminded the participants of what it was all about. Quite naturally, Jesus led the proceedings, and he began to work through the familiar Passover liturgy. There were four cups of wine. 
that were ceremonially shared during this, each intended to symbolize, to help them remember the promises made by God to his enslaved people and recorded in Exodus 6, 6-7, where God says, I will bring you out. Second promise, I will free you. Third promise, I will redeem you. Fourth promise, I will take you as my own people and I will be your God. So there were those four cups and there was a yeast-free bread. Actually, it was uh, more like a cracker. It was traditionally pierced and striped. And this was to remind them of the escape from Egypt, that the escape was so quick that there was no time for yeast to be put into their bread. There were some bitter herbs to remind of the bitterness of slavery. There was some salt water to remind of the tears shed in slavery and of the Red Sea through which they were to pass on dry ground. And there was even a special paste made of the uh, apples and dates and pomegranates and nuts to remind them of the clay that they had to make to turn into the Egyptian building bricks. And traditionally, at the heart of this meal was a roast lamb that had been ceremonially slaughtered at the Jerusalem temple that afternoon. But interestingly, there's no reference to the lamb in this particular Passover meal. And many Bible scholars suggest it's because this Passover meal was held a day early, on the Thursday. For actually, it was the following day, the Friday. In fact, at the time that Jesus died, on Friday afternoon, there on that cross, 3 p.m., the Passover lambs were being slaughtered in the temple area. So, let's have a look at this hugely important and symbolic meal that Christians now celebrate as what we call communion or the Lord's Supper. There seems to be 101 descriptive words for it. First of all, I want us to notice this. The Passover teaches us to look back in gratitude. The Passover teaches us to look back in gratitude. Now, if you're new to the Bible story, let me just go over the uh, historic event that Passover centers on and remembers. You see, it's all to do with the time when the Israelites were slaves in Egypt. They were slaves there for about 400 years, finally making their escape, their exodus, uh, around about the year 1500 BC. We're told in the Bible that God used a leader called Moses, and that through a variety of plagues, and probably you've heard about this, the blood, the darkness, the gnats, the locusts, the hails, the frogs, you know, all that sort of sweet stuff going on. The so-called gods of Egypt were exposed as impotent non-entities. But still, the king of Egypt, the pharaoh, would not release the Israelite nation from their slavery. So the final sign involved God sending an angel who would go through the land of Egypt and kill all the firstborn sons. However, if the Israelites took and killed a young, blemish-free lamb and painted its blood over their doorposts, then the angel would pass over. They would be safe 
And that Passover is where we get the uh, term, the expression, the Passover meal. And, and that's what happened all those years ago when it started. The enslaved Israelites ate the roasted lamb along with the bitter herbs and the yeast-free bread. And they were ready for Pharaoh to issue the command that was ev- to evict them from the land. And under the leadership of Moses, they started a journey that concluded when they reached their promised land. And every year, the Israelite nation were commanded to remember what God had done for them. Every year on the 10th day of the first month of the Jewish year, they hold this commemorative meal, this Passover meal. And as Jesus changed the Passover meal into something that Christians now do regularly, one feature of that is the look back. We may not have been slaves in Egypt, but we certainly were slaves to sin. We were under its power and control. We were shaped and controlled by our own passion our own self-will. It was part of our spiritual DNA that we were those who rebelled against God and just said, God, I don't care what you say. I'm going to do what I want to do. It was who we were. And the Bible describes that as being enslaved by sin. But now, following the sacrifice of the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, We look back, not in anger, but with tremendous gratitude that he did what we could never do. We're humbled and grateful that we've been set free from sin's dominion and control. We're delighted that we've been liberated to be the people that God made us to be. You see, the Passover teaches us to look back in gratitude. But secondly, the Passover teaches us to look up in dependence. To look up in dependence. You see, there comes a point in the Passover ritual, this ritual that has gone on for thousands of years, when the leader of the ceremony would take the bread, this yeast-free, the matzos, and would broke it, break it and say the following words. This is the bread of affliction which our fathers ate in the wilderness. Now the disciples knew the words so well. They'd they'd said them for years. So imagine their sheer astonishment when Jesus changes the words. He says something different. He takes the bread... He breaks it. They're expecting the familiar words. In fact, Jesus goes on and says, Take and eat. This is my body. And while they're still reeling from the shock, Jesus continues with the Passover ritual. He picks up the next cup that they're to drink as part of their ceremony, the third out of the four cups of wine. It was the cup that was known as the cup of redemption. And he once again changes the words and says something even more shocking. He says, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, 
which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Now, we don't need to spend long on deciding whether Jesus meant that the bread and wine had become his actual body and blood at that moment. Look, every Jew knew that the Passover language was symbolic. They weren't actually eating the manna that their forefathers had eaten in the wilderness. They were remembering symbolically what it meant. Now, actually, the bigger shock here was the implication of it all. This talk of body and blood separated from each other pointed to a violent death, to a sacrificial death. It seemed to underline what Jesus was pointing to, that he was the ultimate Passover lamb. He was the one who would be slaughtered for others violently. He was the one whom the disciples should feed on just as they would feed on the roasted lamb in the ordinary Passover ceremony. Indeed, a, a tradition has arisen in, in Jewish homes, had arisen in Jewish homes at Passover time, to break the bread into three. So one that they'd broken off was to remember Moses. The second piece was to remember Elijah. The third piece was to remember the coming Messiah. But this last piece, they played a game. They still do in, in Jewish homes at Passover time. So, sometimes that Messiah piece is, is broken again. Sometimes it's not. But then they would wrap it and they would go around the house and they would hide it. And it was a game that the kids would play. They would be looking for Messiah. Literally, they were looking for the Messiah bread. Where is it? It's been hidden. It's fun. And it's as if Jesus is saying, he takes the bread, he breaks it, and he says, yes, this is my body. I'm the one you're looking for. I'm the promised Messiah. And what's more, Jesus not only hints in the strongest possible terms that he's God's promised rescuer king, that he's the perfect once and for all sacrifice for sin. He also speaks of himself as the covenant maker that God's people had been looking for. Listen again to what he said. He said, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Now look, listen to the Old Testament passage. We're going to have it on screen. It was this passage that Jesus is very clearly referring to. There was no doubt about it. The disciples knew this. It comes from Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will, not like, it will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. 
No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. You see, the old covenant that the Passover meal looked back to was never able to deal with sin. It couldn't take it away. No, it was there as a reminder to the Israelites that they had rebellious hearts and that they needed to keep looking up to God for his promised deliverance. And this promised covenant that Jesus speaks of here is not dependent upon someone perfectly keeping all of God's laws. That, that couldn't be done. Instead, the Greek word used here has the sense of a one-way transaction where one party firmly promises to do stuff irrespective of the other. Let me illustrate what I mean. You and I often enter into two-way contracts. You and I are used to that. We, we do that. Illustration, uh, Kath and I for our house, we've just ordered a sofa from those good people at Sophology. And... Uh, now, it works like this. We pay them some money. They, in due course, will deliver us a sofa. It's a two-way transaction. And if any party breaks either way, if we don't pay the money, we don't get the sofa. If they don't deliver the sofa, we will go to law against them because we've paid the money. It's a two-way transaction. There is a two-way expectation. But a one-way transaction... The one-way covenant that Jesus was speaking of is like, for example, the will and I that Kath, have, Kath and I have made, or actually we're in the process of making again. Leaving our few earthly possessions to our two kids. Now, they don't have to do anything. They don't have to earn it. It's theirs. Well, it will be. It's a one-way covenant. We've promised to give our kids something irrespective of what they do or don't do. And Jesus is clearly indicating that his coming sacrificial death will pay the price for the forgiveness of sins for many, many people. Not to be earned, not to be paid for, it couldn't be but to be received by faith with gratitude. So you see, the Passover teaches us to look back in gratitude. The Passover teaches us to look up in dependence. Thirdly, finally, the Passover teaches us to look forward in confidence. It teaches us to look forward in confidence. For example, if you were to attend a Jewish Passover ceremony, or you may be here, and, and you may be a practicing Jew, and this is common to you, you know how the Passover ceremony ends. At the end of the Passover ceremony, there is a toast, and the toast is this, next year in Jerusalem, by which is meant a deliberate looking forward to God's final perfect kingdom. There's always a sense in the Passover then, in the Passover now, there's always a sense that Passover is pointing to something greater to come. 
And as he closes their Passover meal in that upper room, Jesus says this, Matthew 26, 29. I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And the Old Testament actually is littered with references to what is known as the heavenly banquet. It's, it's how heaven is described. It's what eternal life with Father God is, is likened to. It's glorious. It's a party that doesn't end. It's complete satisfaction that will never disappoint. It's perfect love where selfishness can't intrude. Now, this is all gloriously wonderful. But just to focus on that would miss the point that Matthew is making in his gospel. You see, he's described the covenant that Jesus brings about through his sacrificial death. Matthew has made clear that it's all of grace alone and isn't dependent upon us earning it. And then he records the familiar reference at the end of a Passover meal to the heavenly banquet. But there is one major addition to what he wrote. Let me just let me read that verse again and we'll highlight the interesting words. Matthew 26, 29. I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you, with you in my Father's kingdom. See, we know from the other gospel accounts that Judas had left the meal by this point. Jesus was addressing his remaining band of disciples, and he's assuring them that they will be with him in glory. You say, well, so what, Andy? So, so, so what's the big point? Well, actually, suddenly, that gives the next section that Matthew includes a whole new flavor. Let me read it. Again, I think we'll have it on screen. Matthew 26, 31 to 35. This is what immediately follows. Then Jesus told them, this very night you will all fall away on account of me. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter replied, even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. Truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, this very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. But Peter declared, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the other disciples said the same. Do you see it? Can you see why those words of Jesus in verse 29 are so important? Can you see why it's so glorious to understand the wonder of the covenant that Jesus brings? It's because you and I are inveterate failures. We have such a high estimation of our abilities. We think sometimes that we're good enough for God. We think that we have the strength to serve him. Yet, as so many of us here have discovered, we fail. Time after time after time. 
and our conscience beats us up. We feel that continual sense of shame and unworthiness. When we came to Christ and we took him as Lord, it seemed so, so glorious and so wonderful, but, but oh, how we feel failures. Do you know that I think there are even people here in this congregation this morning who feel they shouldn't be here. You're sitting here and you, you really feel like an outsider. You know, what are you doing in a church? Because you say, I, shouldn't, I, I don't deserve to be here. I'm a failure. I'm a screw-up. Andy, if you knew what I've gone through this last week and what I've done this last week, and Andy, if you knew what I've, I've thought this last week, you wouldn't want me in this church to come to Charlotte Chapel, but, but I'm here, Andy, and I'm feeling pretty inadequate. I'm feeling pretty rubbish. Join the club. Here's the great news for repeat offenders. Here's the gospel for those crushed failures. It's not down to you. It's down to the finished work of Jesus. It's down to his sacrificial love in dying in our place. It's down to his unconditional covenant that will bring his children home to glory. At that first Passover, around about 1500 BC, the only thing the Israelites had to do was to apply the blood of the sacrificed lamb to the doorposts of their home. So that, that, that lamb was, was slaughtered and the blood was collected before it was roasted and, and they took the, the blood and with hyssop branches they were to take it and they were to go outside and apply it to the doorposts. Because they knew that if the blood was on the doorpost, the avenging angel, as it were, the one representing the very wrath of God against sin and rebellion, would, would see the sacrifice, would see the lamb, and would pass over. Can you imagine? Look, I'm a firstborn son. If I was alive then, I would have been going to my dad. Dad, have you done it? Is it there? Have you applied the blood? Are we safe? Are we safe? My friends, let me just ask you as I close this morning, have you done that before Almighty God? I'm not asking if you've taken some blood from a lamb. I'm asking if you have taken Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Whether you have come in repentance saying, yeah, I am a screw-up and a failure and I mess up and I don't know joy going my own way. I know I am under your wrath, but Jesus, thank you, that you shed your blood, that you died as that once for all final sacrifice for sin. Thank you, God, that you took the initiative, that you haven't left this world to just run on in its own craziness. Thank you, Jesus, that in amazing love you entered our tiny planet, you entered our time and space, you went and you took my sin on Calvary's cross. Jesus, be my friend. Jesus, be my saviour. Jesus, be my Lord. Have you cried out in that way? Have you, as it were, applied the blood to your life? 
Have you entrusted yourself to such a loving and to such a faithful Savior? You know, you can do that even this morning. It doesn't require religious ceremony. It doesn't require anyone to wave their hands over you. There are no special words. It just means in the quiet of your heart, as you have your head bowed, as you realize these awesome, heavy truths, that you say, Jesus, I'm so grateful that you extend your invitation of life to whoever would come, and I'm coming. And I'm bringing with me the whole baggage of my failures and of everything I've done wrong. And, and I know things aren't going to change overnight, Jesus, and I know I'm still going to screw up and fail, but I'm so grateful that when I come to you in repentance and faith and you make me new, I thank you that I am assured of home in heaven with you that I am adopted into your family as your new son. Thank you, Jesus. Look, if you want to know more about these things, there are, there are folks who just, they love to help you. They love to talk with you. At the front, there's going to be members of a prayer team. They'll sort of be hanging around the front. Have a word with them. They'd love to talk to you. Maybe there's stuff you'd like them to pray for. They, they, they'd love to do that. As you go out of the church through that door, on the left-hand side, there's what we call Connect Corner. Some nice... Comfy settees and sofas. Go and sit down there. Someone will come and chat to you. You find someone. I'm going to be at the door as well and just say, tell me more about what it means to receive the forgiveness of sins through the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray.